Welcome to Construction Cashflow. I'm your host, Stu Davidson, and if you haven't already done so, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. What you're dealing with when you're trying to raise as a whole across the industry professional standards, you're dealing with ingrained, entrenched attitudes. If and when we are, oh, don't start me on the subjects of contracts, like, and they're, they're just signing it, and I think, oh, God, you know what I mean? It's awful. It is real. It's it's a proper, it is the Wild West. That's, listen, mate, it's the building game. It's hard. If you don't like it, it ain't for you. Right, there you go. Get out there. If you don't do it, get tools. Fuck off. Someone else will be here tomorrow doing it. They're pure bullies. But they're going to ride you like a dog and get that done cheaper than anyone else. And that's how they're winning the contracts. I'm going to buy myself a second-hand van, set of ladders, and I'm putting ads in the newsagent window tomorrow. All building work undertaken, no job too small. You are setting up and running a fully-fledged construction site and every single law that applies to me on the biggest infrastructure projects in Europe applies to you. So these blokes are turning up with all good intentions but they're walking into a world of contracts and retentions and phrases like smash and grab an EOT and you need to submit me a four week look ahead and work behind you know so we're giving you a pay less notice and, and, and the bloke's walking around with his head spinning because not only has he got to find wages for 20 blokes who are paying every week right he still have money for himself he, he's got all of the gear and then he, he's just lost so then you'll get the really ruthless firms who will, who, who will go in and their business model is to bully the workers, to have a bully on site running around shouting and threatening people and to knock the suppliers, right? And that's how they win all the contracts. And I know all this because I've worked for them. I've been it done and I've had it done to me and it's still going on. So then they brought in this m manager and he said, I've worked for this lot for 30 years. He said, in their business model, right, this is how they do it. And they do it on every job and they do it to everyone. They'll, they'll take you on, they'll promise you X amount. First month, you'll get it. Second month will be 5% short. You'll, you'll ask why, they'll come out with something. Well, it doesn't matter, it's only 5%, I'll get it next month. Next month, it's 10% plus the five. Now it's 15% you're into them. Now they start to get a bit aggressive, right? But you're thinking, hold on, you know, there's two years work here, we're only three months in, we'll sort out. And before you know it, you are into them for so much dough that you can't walk off. Right? And now they're bang on you. They, you're going in meetings and they are extremely aggressive to you and all that. So what they do, they'll, they'll take subbies to the point of almost completion of the job and then they'll just knock them and they'll just go, well, we've got an in-house legal team 
feel free to take us to court because we can outgun you financially, right? So gone, off you go. These are people, right, who wake up on a Monday morning, kiss their kids, say, what are you doing at school today, you know what I mean? Talk to the wife and go out, dry, you know, very dry, very carefully, let people out in front of them, very politely. Then they walk through that gate at half seven and they've got total destruction of the subway on their mind. the decent subby trying to do the decent thing but he's flapping because he's probably remortgaged his house to, to release funds to fund this job right now his marriage is breaking down now he's under pressure all the time his best mates who he brought on promising them loads of dough who he thought he could rely on they've said to him here listen you ain't paid for two we gotta go no you can't go you're leaving it uh, what am i meant to do that's your problem in this show, we ask our guests to tell us their story, tell us a little bit about their background, how they got to where they are today, how they develop their product, their services, their ideas. And we discuss how that can affect construction cash flow and other areas of construction. And also to give us an idea of how we might make things better and give you a few tips and ideas to take away with you. And listen to the end where you'll find out more about them, more about our guests, about what motivates them, what inspires them. And hopefully that'll inspire you too. And always don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another episode. In this episode, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Dave Ford. Dave has many years experience, in fact, over 40 years experience in the industry and has worked on major infrastructure projects and landmark projects, including Crossrail, Jubilee Line Extension and HS2. He's also worked on the Heron Tower, the Gherkin and the Shard. Dave is a member of the CIOB and the Association for Project Managers. He's also a civil engineer and senior authorised person for electrical safety on HS2. So it's without further ado that I have the pleasure of introducing you to Dave Ford. Hi Dave, welcome to the show. How are you doing today mate? I'm good thanks mate, thanks for having me on. So tell us, Dave, about your story, your background, how you got to where you are, a little bit the challenges, the ups and downs and successes of your career and, and, and your life, really. So, um, yeah, over to you. All right, cheers. Well, um, I was born in Islington, North London. My mum and dad was Irish and my dad was a pipe fitter, but he had his own building firm as well. And... Uh, he always used to do bits of property development in the background as well. Now, I probably didn't have the best mentor because my dad was an alcoholic and a thief. So there weren't a lot of professionalism and there certainly weren't any health and safety. But, you know, this was back in the late 70s. So uh, perhaps the less said about that, the better. <laughs> anyway, I um, when I was 16, I'd done my time as a spark. And I was working for my old man and 
then I, I went off and, and I, I did a few bits and pieces for myself and with him and what have you and got involved in a few other things and then I ended up in Israel for seven years. Uh, didn't intend to stay there. I was just passing through. Uh, it's a long, sad story of too much drink and exotic-looking women, and like seven years later, I was still there. But um, I'd done a lot, an awful lot of building out there, um, and I saw some things that you would never see over here. So that was that, and I came back here. Uh, I forget when I got back, 94 or something, 93. And I decided that I didn't want to be on the tools anymore. So I went to university and I started doing a degree in civil engineering. But I got to the last year and I was getting married. And my missus was pregnant. I just I had to leave. I just had to get out and make money, which was a shame. But that did spark my lifelong interest for studying and self-improvement i'm big into self-improvement anyway but from a professional point of view uh yeah. i've always studied since the age that was probably about 25 then and don't forget all the time i'm dropping back into this property development myself either doing my own little jobs or or with my old man so in 97 i got my first start on the railway that was the jubilee line extension and it was if you like the first ever proper job that i was on because up until that point it really you could still rock up on site in a pair of trainers and smoking a fag and doing what you want but this was proper you know there was rams and stuff everyone's got to wear steel toe cap boats never come across this before so i've been on a railway now 25 years and i've alternated between so when i was on the tolls i was a money monster do you know what i mean I just wanted the money. I wanted the seven twelves in the day. Plus, I'd work. I'd go home every few hours. I'd go and work on London Underground as well. And I could have a job ten minutes from my house, getting one twenty a day or whatever. You phone me up. So I've got a job. It's an hour and a half away, but I'm paying one fifty. I'm there, mate. In the morning, you know. What wouldn't register with me that it was another three hours on my day with a traveling it was another 150 a week and i was there and i didn't care how hard it was at uh, a what a arsehole the governor was how dangerous it was i just didn't care i just wanted that dope you know so i've got on a railway and i've realized that this is a bit different and it was more organized and i could see that the money on a day rate was always sort of better but also there was all these other little things you could do if you've done this course and that course get another 10 a day you get another 25 quid a day so i started working my way through all that and then i become a supervisor on there and then a sort of foreman and then i realized that there was another level of management on there that came from the office and they was on you know they was on substantially more and they had more security and it just looked a lot better so in between this i'm still one of them jobs ending i'm flying off doing a big office fit out in london the shard or the heron tower or the, or the gherkin or something like that 
and I was still working nights on the underground and I was still doing my own private jobs. I had an electrical company and I was still doing bits for my old man. I'm doing property development as well. And it's just, so it's, when people ask me my story, it's hard, mate, because it just all blends into one massive 40 year long job. You know, when people say how many jobs have you had, honestly, I don't know. It's in the hundreds, you know. How many yeah. sites have you been on? I ain't got a clue. Um, so, anyway, bring us up to sort of present date then in about 2015 i, I got on uh, crossrail and i stayed on there for nearly six years i worked for several companies in various different roles i was assistant project manager site manager construction manager i was quality assurance engineer i was project manager and i, I really could see that there was a proper way to do things and whereas going back to 97 when you, i'm talking about rams health and safety i was very very resistant to it i thought oh a load of bollocks you know it's that fucking health and safety bird again does my nothing <laughs> but as it got further i just sort of give up the fight you know i'd go on and all right yeah what have i got to do but then when I went into management, I actually, be on the crossroad, I actually began to understand that this is for a reason. It's not a tick box exercise. Um, and when I look at how I operate with my old man and how I operate for the first sort of 10, 12 years of my life, I said I was a money monster. I didn't care how shit the job was. I realised that I'd, that wasn't normal. I'd been conditioned to accept that, right? That, you know, you'd be grafting away and 10 to 5 on a Friday, governor currently go, yeah, cheers, mate, get yourselves, you're finished. Well, what are you talking about? Yeah, don't know you. You know, and I'm, again, I'm doing that long old slog to the train station with my tools on my shoulder and I'm flying out and when i look back at the amount of injuries i've had in my life i mean i've had some really serious injuries that's twice i've almost been killed and throughout the course of my career i've been on seven separate jobs where people have been killed and i just realized we we were brought up like that to listen mate it's the building game it's hard if you don't like it it ain't for you right there you go get up there if you don't do it get your tools fuck off someone else will be here tomorrow doing it and i just thought that was normal and when when i got into management i realized that that was completely wrong and i realized that there's so many factors that contribute to that one it's the cutthroat um contracting process in the industry two it's the fact that there's a low bar to entry in the construction industry anyone right there this minute can think whatever job i'm doing i've had enough i'm going to buy myself a second-hand van set of ladders and, I, and i'm putting ads in the news agent window tomorrow all building work undertaken no job too small yeah. right so you're getting all i'm working for all these little firms who've underpriced these jobs or they, they, their method of management they're pure bullies but they, they're going to ride you like a dog and get that done cheaper than anyone else and that's how they're winning the contracts and so there's all this that that goes with it and um also you, what you're dealing with um 
when you're trying to raise as a whole across the industry professional standards you're dealing with ingrained entrenched attitudes like i'm 55 right so i've said to you that i started in the late 70s and now it was you got to think there's still folks around who are 10 years older than me 65 so that they was doing it 10 years before i started now if they've only ever worked on small domestic residential jobs and never been held to account by a professional they're they're blissfully ignorant of this they're not willfully ignorant they just don't know they've just never been told that there's a proper way to do it so anyway um then uh, uh you know crosswell eventually finished <laughs> and uh, we were, that's that's another that's for another podcast, mate. Why it went three years and five billion pound over. That's for a whole series of podcasts. But um Yeah, in fact that would be a good one to explore and you know, <laughs> come yeah. back and we'll do we'll do um version two. We do we yeah, do right. episode so, two uh, of that one. Anyway, you know, for being on Crossrail, I was very, very lucky. I was exposed to extremely capable individuals, men and women professionals at the top of their game you know child engineers child construction managers who made time for me to show me how to do things properly and it was then that i decided that i wanted to get a chartership and uh, just at the end of last year i actually got uh, my chartered construction manager status so bringing us up to now i'm working on hs2 i'm on nights uh my job title is senior authorised person. So what that is, it's an electrical based safety role where we've got we've got uh Houston Underground, we've got Houston Network Rail, we've got Houston Square Underground, and we're constructing right on the top, through the middle and the sides, HS2. Now of course all the other assets have got to be kept going. There's a hell of a lot of potential down there with the amount of hv we've got uh, and uh dc tracks and current cables for someone to get hurt so we have a, an extremely rigorous safe system of works and it's my role to oversee that on the nights uh i've still got my own property development company as well and plus i'm doing consulting for several other companies uh, as well when i can squeeze that in yeah, uh, amazing, amazing story, Dave. And you know, it, it's nice to see. Uh, you don't often get the um, the viewpoint from somebody who's worked their way off, right the way up the ranks through the tools, done an apprenticeship, worked on so many different sites. I can relate to it. I started on the tools years ago and worked yeah. my way up, then got a degree, then became a surveyor, etc. And uh, you actually get to know the nuts and bolts, don't you? You, you know, you, yeah. you, you're not sitting, you're not learning in front of a computer all the time. You're actually there on site solving problems. And, and it's so much different when you see it and you're talking to people and you can kind of see the patterns of over time. You see the patterns of things. Do you find that with your work? Because some of the work you're on, the HS2s, you know, the, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the rail work is so complex. You know, do you see patterns of, you know, health and safety? uh that you kind of instinctively know this is what's got to be done here and and you know because of your experience yeah so when you work on a major infrastructure job it is that this is my experience when the the building game had a 
big push for health and safety, I would say, towards the end of the late 80s. And no one was really interested. Then they forced it through in the 90s, and it was purely a tick box exercise, arse covering. That's all it was. People still weren't interested. But now, what I've seen over the last 20 years on these major infrastructure jobs, that um, people genuinely do care. It, it's not a tick box exercise. Time and money is allowed to implement things properly and rightly so and and now the good thing about that is you sort of tend to see the same sort of blokes on now so whether they're in the office or they're on site they would expect that now if, if you told them to do something and the things weren't in place they'd pull you up they go hold on i haven't read the rams you know or have we got an updated risk assessment for this which is lovely but when you go down on these these commercial fit out jobs, mate, it's, it's, we're still back in the sort of mid eighties with a lot of them. And it is purely arse covering. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you do see that you do still see it. It's a shame, but you know, there is the, you've got the good, you've got the big difference between the, you know, the larger kind of projects that have got all the, you know, implementation in place. They, they know how to select the contractors properly, yeah. you know, mate, and they've got the systems in place, but you know, when you get to the smaller projects, then you're kind of almost going back, stepping back 10 years in time, aren't you? you yeah. Know? Um, so tell us about your, so a little bit about your property, uh, your, your property development side and also you know what you're doing at the moment around consultancy or any other things that you know you've got going on sure so um i i met my girlfriend about seven years ago now she's a property developer and she only works with a high net worth individuals and that does luxury properties so when when i met her now i didn't even have a facebook account six seven years ago right I didn't know there was all these networking meetings. I didn't know that it existed. And she said to me, your skills would be highly desirable. So I set up a Facebook account and I started going to some of these property networking meetings and just like, my God, you know, what I found is terrifying. Oh, God, that, you know, <laughs> there's these... Uh, there's these courses out there, these three-day courses, these five-day courses that will will take five grand off you and send you on your way, completely telling you that you are now qualified to mm. do extremely complex property developments involving high-risk activities, demoli demolition, excavation, God knows what. And there's this flippant throwaway comment at the end of all of them uh just find a builder oh yeah where, where do i find a builder then perhaps there's one sitting outside my house right now with all these men with all the gear ready to go you know got nothing else to do and starting them on i mean it's terrible it's awful so yeah. um at the time she was sort of working with this russian bloke and I started consulting for him. Now, that was lovely because it was all high-end stuff, Kensington, Belgravia in London. It was lovely, money, no object, you know, it was proper. Um, but then I started working right at the other end with people who literally didn't have a clue. And that's not to be disrespectful to them. But 
when you go on a, a construction site, you're dealing with people who've done a three, four year apprenticeship. You're dealing with people who've done three, four years degrees and they've got 20, 30 years experience. And you cannot do a one day course and join a Facebook group and call yourself a developer. You just can't, yeah. right? So how I work with them, I'll look at their project. I'll look at what their costs are, how, how they've done it. And first of all, I'll just see if it's viable. And I, I find in the vast majority of times, I will refuse to work with people because their project is doomed to failure before they start, right? So that they are guaranteed to make a loss. And it's pointless me charging them a couple of grand to help them make a loss. So I will just decline, you know. And I find a lot of time they'll they'll book an hour's consultation fee, they'll pay me up front, and I'll end up spending three hours talking them out of it, you know. The, the <laughs> yeah. Third hour they're at my cost, you know, yeah. because I just don't want to see them do it. And but there are some people who listen and, and work very hmm. successfully. So I'll help them, you know, I'll help them with the, the project cost, the tendering process, the selection builders. The, the health and safety is always the first thing. I'll, I'll make it quite clear to them. You are not in the property industry. It does not exist. You are in the construction industry. What you're doing, you're buying something. It's either a building or a piece of land at the end you're selling it or you're renting it out and in the middle you're not doing a refurb or a flip or an hmo what you're doing in the middle is you are setting up and running a fully fledged construction site and every single law that applies to me on the biggest infrastructure projects in europe applies to you on your little three bedroom ass refurb you know and i'll get that into their head and then then if they take that on board, I'll help them. I'll do the program for them. I'll project manage it if they want, or you know, maybe, or I'll do a JV with them. That sort of thing. That's music to my ears, Dave, because I work with a lot of developers, and some of, like you say, they do a little bit of training, and then they yeah. think they're in the property. They're going to do a flip. They're going to buy something. They're going to. Uh, get planning permission and, and and sell it on or they're going to develop it but as you say they're not in the development business they're in a fully fledged construction site business where people's lives are at stake and it's a brute yeah. and as you know it's a brute it can be brutal from a commercial perspective and from a health and safety perspective and um richard brackstone put post on linkedin today about another guy that had that had got killed uh, abseiling off the side of a building for a company yeah. where they hadn't done the proper rams they hadn't done a yeah. method statement risk assessment you know and like you just mentioned it still goes on people are still not doing the right thing so when you're going into properties you know you're, you're actually dealing with human beings aren't you at the end of the yeah. day you know and there's people going to be doing the work for you and you've got to make sure they're safe so you know it's, it is music to my ears what you're saying absolutely and there's a lot of companies and a lot of developers could really use your services yeah well um it's not it's not just that it's the commercial aspects right so now when i go on a lot of these property groups it's like the builder is the enemy you know like a thousand years ago people would be going oh the vikings are coming the vikings are coming 
with these people, you see them in front. Oh, oh, the builders are coming. Oh, how do I talk to them? How do I do? And I thought, you know, <laughs> what, is a, what is a builder? He's just a bloke who's trying to earn a living. He's, he's set himself up to do building work. That, that's all. But some of these are extremely commercially astute, shall we say, right? So they'll look at the documents you've given and they will see massive scope gaps in there right and they won't say anything so they will tender purely on the details you've given so 50 grand's worth of work they know full well there's another 25 grand's worth of work right so they they'll tender at like 47 grand to come in lower then yeah all great sign a contract uh work starts gets to the crucial point you turn up one day and they're just standing there and they go, oh, what's the problem? And they'll go, oh, what about this? They'll go, what about what? And they'll point it out and, and then just going, oh, what do we do? And builders just stand there going, don't know, what do you want to do? You know, and, and it's like, it would have been another 25 grand if we'd done it at the beginning, but we've put all the ceilings up now and skimmed them and painted them. So we've got to smash all them down, you know, and we've got so actually it's that 40 grand's worth of And, is, is is the builder morally bound to to point out your defects as a businessman or woman is he i don't know you know what i mean me i'm a member of uh association for project management chartered institute building and institution of engineering and technology i am duty bound by the code of conduct to point things like that out but when you get a builder is he what you know what I mean? I'm not saying yes or no, but this is the harsh commercial reality of what's going on. And if and when we are, oh, don't start me on the subjects of contracts like they either don't exist or basically what people are signing up to are the, are the builder's payment terms. It's just a sheet of A4 paper with the address of the builder's office the, the address of the site you know i agree joe blogs builders and, and john smith developer to do this work for 100 grand 20 grand up front and 10 grand payable on the first day of the month like and they're, they're just signing it and i think oh god you know what i mean mm. it's awful it is real it's it's a proper it is the wild west you know and mm. I, I just feel duty bound over what i've learned in my life and what i've seen to at least try and do something about this and i'll do a lot of free stuff i'll give away a lot of free information i do webinars videos i talk at events and whatever that don't you and if people if look if people are going to make money out of a project yeah then i want paying for my advice but the rest of it i'm happy to give away because i, I just feel as a professional it's my duty you're not the first to, that on the on the podcast to to discuss that matter there is so many contractors subcontractors going into contracts they don't know what they're signing and you're going to want to make it transparent and easy for the builder to understand the project because if he doesn't understand the project, then you're going to end up paying more because yeah. he hasn't included it. I mean, I transparent and easy for the builder to understand the project. Because if he doesn't understand the project, then you're going to end up paying more 
because yeah. he hasn't included it. I mean, I, I spent years and years developing or, or you know, tendering uh, work for clients. And even after all those years and the more complex, the you know, the more detailed the tender documents and the contracts have become, there's always something, you know, you're always constantly finding that little gray area. You know, you're always looking. So, you know, somebody that's been doing it a long time, it's difficult enough. But if you haven't done it before, you know, what, what's your chances, you know, of, 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 of protecting your profit? You, you're not going to do it, are you? Well, well, then what you hear from them is the builder's ripping me off. He's charging me mm. for all these extras. Well, when you look at it, yeah, they are extra to what you agreed because you didn't give him the right information to start with. And what is he meant to do them for nothing? But also what I find when uh, clients bring me into a project, I can find a builder who, with all the best will in the world, um, he, he's not quite capable for it. And that's fine because we can work together because then I can point things out to him that he's not aware of or he's missed. And or I'll, I'll just say, hey, you can do that, mate. He'll go maybe it's a bit of pointing on the the ridge of the chimney He'll go yeah i'll just jump up there get ladders up there I'll go no 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 you can't do that mate like you know you, you've got to have a mirror or a well, i can't do it. and i can point him to see the m regulations and he'll go away well, can't better go well that's going to cost me and then i can go back to the client who i'm working with and go look there's an additional cost there because to comply with the regulations he needs to bring this in he's not having you over you know, but also if you allow him to jump up there on a ladder as a client, you, you could be held responsible. So it's not like they bring me in. It's not like people find me out, go here, Dave, you know, I've um, got this project, few problems with build. I go, oh, hang on, you know, roll me slow. I'll be down there, I'll sort him out. It's nothing like that. You know, I go down there, just all right, mate, how's it going? What's, what's going on? I understand there's a few problems there. And he can talk to me on a level that perhaps he can't talk to the client on. And it is all about working together. And it is, you know, communication on a site is a, a massive thing. I have sat through, oh God, numerous, numerous interface meetings on big projects. And I've just listened and I thought, you know, you've got the client over there or the tier one and we're the tier two or whatever. And I, I just listen think, oh, are we, like, we've all been here for a year, you know. Um, are we actually talking about the same job? Because it's just, the, the, so communication is, is key. Yeah, yeah. And you hear a lot of small businesses, you know, you mentioned at the beginning about, you know, they're a tradesman that suddenly find himself running a business. Yeah. You know, he doesn't really know about business that much. You know, he's just going to employ guys to do the work so he's not necessarily worked his finance finances out properly you know and what do you think they could do what do you think could be done better to to improve the the cash flow on construction because you quite often see the main contractor side of, of things where obviously they're they have their own reasons why they're going to slow down payments but it may be that the Con the, the subcontract hasn't helped himself maybe he hasn't put the applications in maybe he hasn't worked out you know maybe he hasn't got his guys there uh, on time he's not understood the program or he's not understood the drawings contractors get a bad press 
but sometimes you know there are the, the subcontractors don't help themselves albeit main contractors depends whether they're construction people whether they're developers whether they're just interested in investment they're using the supply chain to fund their type of thing and um, what do you think could make it or you know maybe a couple of things where you know subcontractors could make it easier for themselves to get paid and um really what main contractors could do to help it help the system a bit so i've listened to all the other podcasts and there's been some very good input from all your other guests about this from what i've seen from a subcontractor's point of view it it, it depends on the sort of size of the projects and that but you got blokes so they're genuinely willing to graft right and, and they're willing to be there on time and 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 work late and get the job done and bring on labor and that but they don't realize what they're signing up to right they don't realize that when you sign when you make this the switch from being a good tradesman on the tools maybe making good money on price and you then make that switch to go into the main contractor and saying here yeah, listen if i could get some blokes together would you give me a package of work on a price now the main contractor is always going to say yeah because what does it matter if you don't perform you'll just be off and um if he's ruthless he's just going to knock you just like he's got intentions on knocking everyone whether you're good bad experienced or not so these blokes are turning up with all good intentions but they're walking into a world of contracts and retentions and phrases like smash and grab and eot and you need to submit me a four-week look ahead and work behind you know so we're giving you a pay less notice and and, and the bloke's walking around with his head spinning because not only has he got to find wages for 20 blokes who aren't paying every week right he still have money for himself he, he's got to order the gear and and everything and he, he's just lost you're always going to have people it's like that thing their eyes are bigger than their belly you're always going to have that and i and if you were to say to them look before you take on this bit of work go and spend a couple of grand talking to a qs or a construction lawyer they'd say no you know what i mean mm. i've been doing this 20 years before I don't need all that well that ain't gonna be a problem is there we're gonna smash it out and they'll have no reason not to pay us so it's it's an odd one but when mm. we talk about the whole setup i mean i worked i've done this job once and it actually it was for the firm who i'd um done done my time with my old man had sold it by then and he, he'd gone back to ireland so we're doing this school and we were doing it for one of the biggest um construction companies in the country i, I won't name but anyway cut a long story short um they sent us under right and i was running the job so when i heard that we'd gone under i was packing my office up and walking off and the site manager from the builder company said where are you going i said well it's all over he went no 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 you you stay here and you work for us what you get in a day just tell us we'll pay you so then they brought in this m a manager 
And he said, I've worked for this lot for 30 years. He said, in their business model, right, this is how they do it. And they do it on every job. And they do it to everyone. They'll, they'll take you on. They'll promise you X amount. First month, you'll get it. Second month will be 5% short. You'll, you'll ask why. They'll come out with something. Well, it doesn't matter. It's only 5%. I'll get it next month. Next month, it's 10% plus the 5%. Now it's 15% you're into them. Now they start to get a bit aggressive, right? But you're thinking, hold on, you know, there's two years work here. We're only three months in. We'll sort it out. And before you know it, you are into them for so much dough that you can't walk off, right? Mm. And now they're bang on you. They, you're going in meetings and they are extremely aggressive to you and all that. So what they do, they'll, they'll take subbies to the point of almost completion of the job. And then they just knock them. And they'll just go, well, we've got an in-house legal team. Feel free to take us to court because we can outgun you financially, right? So gone, off you go. And then let's say there's 30 grand on this job for example there was 15 grand left on the lightning protection so all this bloke done he went out to three different subways and he said i've got 10 grand's worth of work here like and one of them took it and that's how they do it and he said to me this is their business model these are people right who wake up on a monday morning kiss their kids say what are you doing at school today you know what i mean talk to the wife and go out, dry, you know, very dry, very carefully, let people out in front of them, very politely. Then they walk through that gate at half seven and they've got total destruction of the subby on their mind. What do you do about that? How, how, how can anyone fight that? This is the reality of the industry we're in, right? So how that translates is now you've got, you've either got the decent subby trying to do the decent thing but he's flapping because he's probably remortgaged his house to, to release funds to fund this job right now his marriage is breaking down now he's under pressure all the time his best mates who he brought on promising them loads of dough who he thought he could rely on they've said to him here listen you ain't paid so we gotta go no you can't go you're leaving it uh, what am i meant to do that's your problem Right, this is where you're up against. So they, the only way they can get a job done is either by running around shouting at people or cutting corners. And when you cut corners, the first two things to go is always quality and safety, right? And then you have accidents, and then that slows the job down. Or you do shit work that gives the builder another excuse not to pay you. And it's just on and on. So what you'll find is a lot of these blokes don't ever do it once and then they've, they'll, they'll go back on the tools or they'll go doing little jobs. So then you'll get the really ruthless firms who will, who will go in and their business model is to bully the workers, to have a bully on site running around shouting and threatening people and to knock the suppliers, right? And that's how they win all the contracts. And I know all this because I've worked for them. Mm. And I've seen it done and I've had it done to me and it's still going on. In the last couple of years, I've seen it happen several times to contractors, subcontractors, and it's exactly what you describe, you know, so it's the, you know, the gradual reducing of the payments, you know, getting the subcontractor to, you know, they're in for a lot of money 
Uh, I'd known one that one subcontractor, so he's on fifty-four days payment. Yeah, you know he's got to pay his workers every week. So before long, you know he's paying a hundred, two hundred k out on his labour force before he gets paid. Yeah, and when he comes to get the application, puts his application and get paid, the main contractors finding ways of reducing that payment, so he can't pay his blokes anymore. Yeah, you know. So what what's he going to do? And at the same time, so they they haven't. So the main contractor's not managing the site properly, you know. So their production's gone down. But he's saying to the subby, "I want more guys on site. I want more guys on site." You know. And the more guys he puts on site, the lower his production goes. The more debt yeah. he gets into. And the only option he's got quite often in the contract. So the contract doesn't allow him to walk off site in most cases. Yeah. Um, even though I would say sometimes it's better to cut your losses, but but it doesn't necessarily put you in a better position. Uh, so so he ends up having to go to adjudication because that's one of the mediation or alternative dispute resolution. But quite often it ends up at you know. The, but the thought of going to adjudication. This is what's kind of I think that's wrong with the uh, uh, dispute resolution. The thought of going to adjudication when you're already two hundred and fifty grand down. You, you're worrying about paying your blokes. You, and like you said, you, you're remortgaging your property. You, your family's nervous. You're nervous about what, what am I going to do? The yeah. last thing you want to do is be faced with a 50, 60, 70 grand adjudication or even start that process because it starts off, doesn't it, as, yeah, it's only uh, going to cost me a couple of grand getting an opinion. Mm. And then it goes up to, you know, five grand then it goes up to 10 grand then we get a solicitor then we get a barrister and the problem is with it you get to adjudication it's all on the adjudicator's decision and his experience they can get the decision wrong and in fact i i would go further and say that even if things go to court the judge if it's a extension of time for example and we're trying to work out cause and effect from six months ago then that decision is going to be wrong, whatever it is, because one side's going to still disagree and one side's going to agree. So it's got to be a wrong decision, whatever you look at. So the one situation that I, I can recall is that it went, uh, there was an issue that the, the, this subcontractor was owed half a million pounds. And right. he, everything was on the line, his property, his business, everything's on the line. Everything he'd worked for for the last, 20 30 years is all on the line it's a big sum of money so it ends up that he's 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 ends up with a barrister with with expert witnesses both sides it was a large contractor main contractor that it's loose change for them you know they're not they're not worried about it and um and and uh top construction barrister goes to adjudication uh, the adjudicator's making sounds that, yeah, it will be a decision in your favour, What the, the, the where that is on the scale, we're not quite sure yet. Anyway, come the day of the decision, he awarded the subcontractor zero. Wow. How can you, you know, how can you, and it went back to the barrister. The barrister said it's the wrong decision, and I'm not going to uh, mention the appointing body, but they made a complaint to the appointing body, and the appointing body put their hands in the air and said, we can't really do anything about it. So there's something there's something dysfunctional about the system for, you know, particularly these guys, you know, where they're not lawyers, they're, they're construction people, they're, you know, they're, they're putting, you know, they build buildings, you know, they put in yeah. electrical cables, they, they put up plasterboard, you know, and then they find themselves in a business situation and they're getting kicked all over the place. And, and so 
when you consider that 95% of construction is carried out by these types of businesses, you know, yeah. it, something's got to change, isn't it? I think I heard you say on a podcast the other day, there should be uh, a sort of free service for smaller contractors to go mm. to adjudication. I really do think that would be a great idea. Might have been Yossif Ewan. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I think yeah. There's, there's got to be something um, because, you know, when uh, Patricia Hayward was, was on, she was talking about things need to change and everything she said was so true. But I just thought the problem is, it's the people we're dealing with. I think it's a very, very archaic system that, so, for example, this business about retention. And anyway, when I was working on Crossrail, I won't say the names, but um, Crossrail parted ways with the Tier 1 contractor. And because we were the Tier 2, we our contract was terminated as well. Now, we had a Tier 3 contractor working for us. And the sums of money involved and the sums of money in dispute were up in the many, many, many millions, the tens of millions. So when you actually look back to we're keeping 5% of your money in case you don't perform, that's just that was just irrelevant, irrelevant in the big scheme of things. But... If things was ticking along nicely, that five percent could have made a big difference to the cash flow. Mm, you know what I mean? Of, of us as the tier two and of the tier three. So I think on these big projects, it's a bit of an outdated process. And again, how can you have it that you're going to come and work for me, and I'm going to pay you in fifty-four days, or maybe even ninety days, right? But in the meantime, I expect you to have. 20 blokes here now in london to to get someone 1500 pound a week ain't nothing out of the ordinary to 10 blokes that's 15 that's 30 grand a week wages times i know 12 you know where are we we're at like 360 grand or same wages let's call it 200 grand's worth of gear as well you know it's like it's, it's half a million pound up front uh, before I give you anything, and then I'm going to turn around and go, yeah, well, actually, uh, I'm not paying you the, the the amount you've put. If, I mean, it's completely outdated, you know, yeah. and that sort of thing creates a closed shop. That's why you only ever see the big players on these big projects. It's not because they're the best. It's because they can finance it. It's because they've got the biggest trade accounts and they've got the biggest credit accounts with labour agencies. That's why you see them on all these big jobs. And it shuts out the smaller person. But when we talk about retention, go back to what I do property developing, I always, always, always advise people to, to keep it, who, people who are novices, because a lot of times it's their only protection against rogue builders, you know what I mean? And then we go, funny enough, switch it back from uh, major infrastructure projects down to you know very basic property developing things you get this other thing where the builder goes like i want 20 percent up front you know but you haven't done anything you know what i mean no no well 
I can't finance it. Hold on, if you can't finance, if you can't run your company for one week or one month, then you're basically insolvent, you know. Um, and do I really want to be getting into a financial partnership with you? I, mm. I probably don't. And so, actually, it's a good point you make there, both ways. Is you know, being careful who you're going to get into a partnership with, whether yeah. you, it's the builder you're going to get into partnership with. You know, you knowing what to check to see where the risks and the red flags are. And if you're a, equally, if you're a builder or you're a subcontractor, make sure you know your client. You know, what, how do they operate? Definitely. You know? If if um. And again, in my the, the property developing stuff I'm involved in, my advice is equally open to builders and subcontractors as well. You know, if you are going to take on deals with these people, have you asked to see if they're financially sound? You know, have you actually asked to see a bank statement that they've got the money there? Uh, if not, that's down to your due diligence. They're doing due diligence on you. But what due diligence are you doing on the client? It works both ways. Everything works both ways. And the answer to everything is everyone to have more knowledge. That's that's what it's all about. Not only do I need to know what I'm supposed to do, I need to know what you're supposed to do as well. And I need to know how you're supposed to do it and what you need to make that happen. So I, I can't just rock up, do a beautiful job, and you go, ah, oh, you know what? So sorry, my mate was going to lend me the money, but uh, I think I can get it off someone else. But you know, mm. that's great advice, Dave. Really, really good advice. What advice would you, if you could give um, a takeaway for maybe a, a small one, one of small subcontractors or business, something to take away with them today? What What would that be? Right. So I, I would say, think very carefully about who you're going to subcontract so you know uh and, and why why up the risk of not just the finance the headache that could go wrong with it you know make sure you set up properly make sure you know your stuff backwards what your liabilities are under cdm because i know a lot of extremely good builders who've been doing it 20 30 years have never seen a risk assessment in their life wouldn't know what CDM was, wouldn't know what working at height regs were, never heard of RIDOR 2013, you know, just because no one's ever told them, you know. But make sure that you're bulletproof from that point of thing. And um, if you ever sort of come into this situation where there's arguments, disputes about money, you know, have a serious think, do I want to proceed with this? Or is it better to just call it quits now? You know, you don't have to be aggressive about it. Just make a decision that this don't look right. I'm not proceeding. Where, if uh, people listening, uh, where could they get more advice from you? How can they contact you? You know, find out more information. Probably the easiest way is through LinkedIn because it gives. I think he's got my phone number on there, but it's got my email address and it's got the link to my property developing website on there as well. Well, I'll put the link, I'll put your LinkedIn the, into the podcast notes so they yeah, can just mate. watch it. If they watch it, they can link through and come come and, and link it and link in with you on there. So thank you for that, Dave.
Great story, great advice. Yes, loads, of, loads and loads of gold nuggets. I, I know I've, I've picked up a lot from speaking to you today. So what, ready for a um, quick fire round then? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm meant to look for this and write all the answers down. No worries. So it we'll, will be quick fire. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it. It's nice and relaxed. It's a bit of fun. Right, okay then. I'll go through these, these are quite quick fire, right? So how, did, how do you start your day? Well, I'm working nights at the moment, but <laughs> let's just say I was on days. It's, it's always the same. I wake up, um, I drink two cups of coffee, I wash my face, then I always, before I do anything, I go down and I read my book on, on stoic quotes and find out what part of my thinking I'm meant to be working on today. That I'll do that religiously, you know, before I touch phones or turn on screens or whatever and sets me up for the day when are you most productive ah right again assuming that i'm keeping the same as ever i'm a night bird mate always always you know i mean i'll get ideas i'll get creative at 11 o'clock at night you know even when i've got to be up at half four in the morning i'm walking around the house planning things and writing emails and things and yeah so late at night always what's something new happening in your life right now right actually i'm working with uh, a company who do infrared heating uh i've been interested in modern technologies and mmc and you know carbon reduction and all that so i'm working with them and i think this is just about to explode so really exciting times what does adventure look like to you? Um, mate, let's just say I had a, a very misspent youth and I've done loads of things that I've better left in the past. Um, I've had a life of adventure and just now I'm happy when there's, there's no dramas going on, you know. What thing would you love to do that might surprise your friends and family? Oh, right, okay. I would actually like to be a lawyer. But you'd make a good one as well, Dave. Um, <laughs> uh, name a challenge you overcame that changed your life. Uh, right, okay. Well, uh, for the record, I am almost 23 years clean and sober um there was a point in my life when i was homeless sticking needles in my arm and a, a lot of uh, other bad stuff went on so yeah i don't want to talk about that not not that it bothers me it's just most people won't understand and uh, a lot of stuff is left in the best left in the past but yeah that um obviously that's that's changed my life yeah and it's inspirational that you can get from that position to where you are now and i'm sure listeners uh, will will relate to that there will be listeners going through hard times and tough times and yeah. finding themselves homeless and and also you know the people that work in the industry you know things can turn around as we discussed you can go from learning a lot of money to broke uh, yeah. very very quickly and and i'm sure there's guys out here that will listen to that story and that testimony and go do you know what um you know they've got through it i can get through it yeah yeah so what inspires and motivates you 
Right, two things. Um, my nan and granddad. My my nan, they're both uh, passed away now. Um, my nan came from Ireland with, with nothing, and uh, her husband died within six weeks of her being here, left her with four little kids, and she just cracked on with it. You know, no friends, no families here, never complained just just got on with it got on with her life my granddad bill you know he was in prison during the second world war and they let him out on condition he'd join the army and he joined the desert rats and he was uh, badly injured and he spent three years in a german prw camp and he came back home he was a rag and bone man around the east end and uh i never never once in my life he was in constant pain his whole life I never once heard him complain ever about anything. You know, so my property company is named after their initials. But the second thing that motivates me and inspires me, as I said, you know, I've had a, 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 a long uh, adventurous life, if you want. I was in the military and uh, I came out of there with certain skills. So back in... 2000 between 2015 and 2017 there were a lot of uh, very sad events going on in iraq and syria uh, me and a group of others we we got together and we went out there uh, we went out there three times actually and uh we offered our assistance to the kurdish forces and um we, we set up a combat medical unit like i'm a i'm a trained combat medic and um we've done a lot of good we managed to save a lot of lives uh, and we trained just under two thousand blokes and we raised a couple of hundred grand in donations from medical supplies uh the, the thing is though during the course of those three trips four of my good friends was killed and um, three from america one from england from bournemouth and it's them that inspires me really that every day i you know i had a very very hard time coping with it and because like I'm, I'm taking time off from crossrail to go to a war zone and now i'm coming back and, <laughs> you know but i i i truly believe that um it is uh beholden upon me now to achieve as much success as i can on their behalf but, but to achieve the success that they unfortunately will no longer be able to so that's what gets me up in the morning that's that's what pushes me constantly seven days a week what advice would you give your young self <laughs> <All right. laughs> you are the problem listen to the people who are trying to help you well, thank you, thank you so much for that, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. It's been great, Joe. Thank you very much, mate. You've been listening to Construction Cashflow. Hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so, so you never miss an episode. And remember, the faster cash flows, the faster wealth grows. <laughs>